Ollie North is back. New president of the National Rifle Association. I'm going to have to explain to my kids who Oliver North is. If you don't think that's going to get me swearing, you have another thought coming. This has been your obscenity warning. Now we're going to get mail about what's the female equivalent of mensch. Well, then we have a piece that's called wench. Someone was like, the female equivalent of mensch is a wench. And I'm taking this back. And everyone was like, Love it. nope. Happy Mother's Day. This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week by senior writer Leah Leibowitz. Yom Ha'em Sameach. And deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Happy 40th day of the Omer. This week, a very unorthodox Mother's Day episode. We're going to talk about women and talk to women who don't have children or can't or won't. And, uh, you know, we're going to talk about how that plays in the Jewish and the Catholic worlds as it happens. Our Jew of the Week is Panina Lamb-Kaplansky, who's going to talk about infertility and miscarriage in the Jewish world and in Israel. And our Gentile of the Week, reaching high up onto the Gentile shelf for a serious Gentile, is Sister Julia Walsh, a Catholic sister who's going to talk to us about, is it fair to say renouncing fertility? Does that does that have a harsh well, Renouncing cast? motherhood. Renouncing mother. I wouldn't say she's renounced it. She's... Declined. You've, you've she's given turn, it up she's for it. a larger purpose, She's arguably. ascended past it. She's married Christ, and we're going to talk to her about that. And finally, we have a terrific interview. Stephanie talked to the director of Wendy's Shabbat, a new documentary about a group of older Jews who have a regular Friday night date at Wendy's for Shabbat dinner. But let us turn to our lives. It is Mother's As Day. Always. Mother's Day approaches. But enough about everything else. Enough about everything else. Liel, is there Mother's Day in Israel? It must be Mother's Day. What is this Mother's Day? Uh, yeah, but you Yom HaIma. Yom HaIma. Ha uh, yeah. Right? Yom HaIma, as we say in Israeli <laughs> uh, parlance. Here's the thing about Israel. I don't want to get too macabre, but like, for very obvious reasons, it's a very child-centric society. I think the calculus being like, if you potentially are in the next 10 to 15 years going to mandatorily join an organization that may cut your life get you killed right so much shorter than you had hoped like you kind of are at the center of the universe so mother's day is like yeah nice here's some like a flower i picked in the garden father's day is virtually completely non-existent because why even bother and 364 days of the year are like kid day kid day yeah but, but don't you think about the the Mothers of children who have died, like that. To me, there seems to be a real resonance there. Oh, things took a took a turn for the cheerful. Very, very <laughs> no, I'm just thinking because we always you're saying that, like, yeah, like the cemetery. Isn't there like the cemetery we visited on Birthright, where it's like the yes young soldiers who died, and I then mean, it's look, like I imagine Mother's Day is hard to this day. But is Mother's I, Day just but that's an American more, isn't invention? That, isn't that more yeah. Yom Hazikron? Right? Is that's when you think about the families who have lost people? Well, you think about this every day, all, all the time. You know, I, I to this day have not been with one exception, have not been to a funeral of anyone older than me. Wow. That's with, with one exception. Crazy. So a grandfather. We'll try to get you an invite. That, well, let's, yeah, we could, we could hold off we, on we that. We could hold off on that. Um, but Mother's Day is super American. And, yeah. and I have to say, I'm going to go out on a super limb here. I have no evidence for this. I don't see it as particularly Jewish because I feel like, you know, the culture is more all about the kids. And I also just feel like the immigrant three generations ago, my grandparents, I don't think my grandma was big on Mother's Day. Okay, but I think we should always be thanking our Jewish mamas every single day. Right. Because if you think about just what they do for us. And, and our non-Jewish mamas. And just yeah, but, mamas. You know, but I'm just thinking in, in Jewish culture, like this idea of the Jewish mother is this right. like over, you know, is, is all sorts of stereotypes, but is in fact a loving figure. For sure. And supportive figure. And so I like the idea of, of just a day where you can say like, I appreciate you, ma. See, but I, I 
dislike it for the same exact reason. It seems to me like a move towards this kind of specialization of everything. It's like, well, we now have parenting experts, and we're going to have a day for the mothers. Every day is Mother's Day. Yeah, I mean, that's what my dad said. My dad says, every day is Father's Day. Don't get me anything for Father's Day. We don't do Mother's Day and Father's Day gifts. I knew you didn't. I knew you didn't. We're not really a gift family. I love you. We're not either. And you know what? Like, Sid and I often, we'll forget our anniversary. We'll do nothing for Mother's or Father's Day. It's just, I, I think it's great for people who do it, but I really do feel that like you know to me and this is this is totally biased to me like the family that's really into mother's day is like the couple that never sees each other because they're both <laughs> working 70 hour jobs right. and they the nanny raises the kids and the dog walker walks the dog but that sunday oy vey you better deliver on mother's day and then it becomes like this added pressure what yeah. do i get for mother's day right and you rent the like cruise around manhattan but i think yeah. there is a nice roses. thing about like putting like articulating your feelings in a card you know i just totally. sent, yesterday i sent my grandma a card and hopefully it gets to boca on time but it's just to say like i love you and thank you and you know like it maybe is like a hallmark constructed bullshit thing but like yeah, but i love do, you and i appreciate we you we can do it every day we should do it every day but i think but that's the a card, lot of cards in fact, to mail. stop right now call your <laughs> call mother call your mother call that's your our that's actually our tagline here's your reminder call your mothers stephanie what's up with you well i am lolling because last night was the met gala and the theme and the basically the <laughs> the exhibit what is about sort of like the fashion influences on Catholicism and our our colleague Shira Talishkin actually has a great article about this in the Washington Post but our friend Jim Martin uh, our Jesuit, Jesuit our priest, Jesuit priest Jim, Jim Martin, Martin whose whose Catholic fashion sensibility is very strong very strong very strong but so he went to the Met Gala he was actually instrumental in getting in, in connecting the Met with Met Costume Institute with like people at the Vatican to, He's to, the fixer. to hook it up. Yeah, so yeah. amazing. So he he tweeted <laughs> things. <laughs> he looked at, ravishing well, in the black he, suit. He went in his like usual outfit, which he wore to our live show, and everyone could could right, you know take suit, it in. Del- you know, understated white collar. Yeah. And, and so people he, he he tweeted actually said to me at the hashtag Met Gala tonight. I love your costume. Is that like for real? <laughs> Funky outfit. You're the best dressed dude here, bro. High fives me. You look just like the real thing. <laughs> and truly, he writes, I love that you got dressed up as a sexy priest. Oh, my God. So James Martin putting the sexy in society of Jesuits. of Mazel Tov to you. Hashtag. The S and the SJ stands for sexy, sexy, sexy Jesuit. Jesuit. It's like Rihanna ain't got nothing on you. I talked about this when Jules Frakes was a guest on our show. And I've talked about it with her since. I think I might have talked about this with Simon Dunin. But, you know... Judaism is, you know, for all of our accomplishments, for all of our being welcomed to the club, to the country club, to the university club, to the neighborhood, nobody ever thinks, nobody really ever thinks that Judaism is sexy in a runway sense. It's kind of played as kitschy. I mean, my point has always been there have been vogues for very African looking women. There have been vogues for very Asian and South Asian looking women. You've never seen the runway show where it's like frizzy haired women with big Jewish noses. But see, if it was a, if it we was a never Met Gala. Get really treated as sexually desirable in that way. But that's I don't even care about that. I'm talking about clothes. Like if yeah, we did a, if we did a Met Gala about Jewish like fashion influences, it would literally be preppy clothes because of Ralph Lauren and <laughs> like all these it would It'd actually be, be all, all the shit that the, we gave the, the going. Yeah, like the making of Americana <laughs> right, by right. Jewish immigrants and I would just wear full schmatas. Well, that would be but see that's, that's the th- right. So there's there is the show that should which the Met should do, which is like how Jacoby Press and mm-hmm. and Ralph Lauren all these people gave us wasp wear. But the other show really would be like, 
like, can we do something sexy with, you know, women in shadles and those stockings, they're completely opaque and long skirt and nobody will ever try it. And I think that's, I think something is missing there. I think that like we say, oh, Catholic church, sexy, you know, and Jews just won't get that, get that love. But we also don't have like the liturgical garb that the Catholic church has. Like we don't got those robes and like the head headdresses are that's pretty- true. Fair enough. We kept it simple. Yeah. We kept it simple. But we, we do beards. Well, yeah, it would be beards. It would be talitot. It would be talesam. Like just like it would be the all talus fashion. I'll walk show. in wearing my tefillin. Yeah. It'd be great. <laughs> so speaking of tefillin, um, yes. this morning <laughs> I wake up because I stayed over last night, Shay Leibowitz. I was I and I woke up and emerged rubbing the sleep out of my eyes to see Liel wrapping up in his tefillin. And I thought- do you think he was this this is the way to begin a morning. Was he just doing it because you were there? Unclear. Unclear. Oh, so you guys had a sleepover last we night? We sleepover last night. Yeah. So just like every night. Yep. Yes, we did. Last so last night I I realized I don't want to get up at five tomorrow morning. So I drove in last night, parked in the garage in your building. Go upstairs. Uh Lisa's flopped out on the sofa. She's fallen asleep reading something. And Liel's sitting there in his throne, uh, reading. And he says, What are you drinking? And he gets me, I say, gin, and he brings me something. It's blue gin. What is it? It's like Gin plus absinthe plus ayahuasca. It's I, just an, a new brand of Canadian. Hold on, let's. let's, let's it's call called it a Monday properly. night. I have it's never so been good. as drunk on half an ounce of liquor as I was on that thing. So then I pass out and have weird dreams all night. Wake up in the morning and emerge to see Liel wrapping up six foot five. Liel wrapping up into fillin in his boxer shorts, and I really think I've gone crazy. I think that actually I've died and gone to some sort of special like Jew land in another yeah, dimension. Yeah, like what was in that gin? I've passed through the, the wrinkle in time. The gin is called Empress nineteen oh eight gin. It's Canadian and made out of some sort of, I don't know, some sort of blue wildflower. Uh, it's bright blue. Uh, it is very potent. Will you send me a bottle of that? I will send you I'd like you a, to request a I present. send you a bottle Because of that. the news of the Jews is I have never been as drunk as I was on half an ounce of that stuff last night. Inshallah. You guys should have done a, a, like a recording segment. We there. <laughs> Meanwhile, I, I emptied, I think, ha- half a bottle of scotch while you were sipping on that little. Delicately sipping. Oh. Well, I'm glad you guys had fun. Yeah. We had fun. Next, sorry, next, not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> News of the Jews, Liel. What you got? I have the motherload. The motherload. Um. By the way, I like that it's like a complete competition now. Yeah. So who can bring the best story? Yeah. If you were hosting the Prime Minister of Japan and his lovely wife over for dinner, what might you serve for dessert? Ooh, maybe like a mochi, like yeah, a like, like a green tea ice cream like that I ate myself in Japan. And and not to be too like detail oriented, but how would you serve it? I think I'm like a very spare, based on my eating experiences in Japan, where I went on my honeymoon, a very spare. Like a nice little white plate. Like a a plate or like maybe like a bamboo tray, something sort of very simple, I would say. Nothing too ornate, nothing too offensive. And so you obviously uh, would not do very well as the prime minister of Israel, who this week, the beloved Benjamin Netanyahu, served Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and his wife, Dessert, which was lovely chocolate uh, laced with gold and seaweed, served inside a shoe. Sorry, what now? They served shoes to the table. Now, in their defense, it was not actual shoes, which actually would have been kind of cool. It was like a really expensive iron cast sculpture of a men's dress wingtip brogue. Uh, and yet, here's the question. I thought it was chocolate, a chocolate shoe. It, it is. No, the, no, the, shoe, was... the shoe is cast iron. Uh, and inside it oh. was was the okay, chocolate. Sorry. Now, this begs the question, why 
Mazel. Why would you ever do that? Now, it was amazing. Correct me if I'm wrong. In the Instagram, the Prime Minister of Japan is smiling. The smile is like, I would like, like to be on a plane I've now. I've seen some shit in my day, but right. nothing like this. <laughs> These Jews are whack. The civilization These is... These Jews are whack. And Japan already has some funny ideas about the Jews. Um, so, correct me if I'm wrong, but... Japan shoes, you don't put shoes, you don't even wear shoes inside. So to put them on a table. By the way, you know who knows that about Japan? Everybody. Every Everybody. single person so, alive. Okay, so the, the, the chef, it was like a famous chef that they pulled in for this meal, right? It was like the, 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 the guy. guy. The Guy Fieri. The Guy Fieri. So did he have an excuse? I mean, when... Uh, very creative. What, you want to serve the boring dessert in the plate with the hummus? But it's, it's like, uh, it's good. really, uh, it's just offensive, right? Because it's like, yes. here's this thing that you guys have said don't, doesn't even belong <laughs> in, in, in your house, yes, right? Like, is. you take it off when you get home, you put on like a nice little slipper. And what and culture gonna, is this appetizing? The only yeah. way this works for me is if the shoe is chocolate. Like if it's chocolate, fine. But you that, can put it. That's still to it's me. Still it's weird. just so then not doing... what someone who is <laughs> Japanese would want right. and would find. But they were screening the, the Charlie Chaplin movie of like him eating the shoe. <laughs> like, look, his shoe is very edible, very delicious. Not well, there. look. I mean, if if uh, if. The chef gets kicked out of Israel. He can always move to Chicago, where in News of the Jews this week, uh, an Israeli was thrown out of an Uber cab for being Israeli. This is an amazing story. Uh, From Tablet's Chicago correspondent, Gretchen Rachel Hammond. I'll just read her piece that she wrote for Tablet. Yesterday afternoon, Itai Milner, Israel's deputy consul general in Chicago, left his office and decided to take an Uber home. I was just sitting in the back seat, he told Tablet. We'd been driving for about 10 minutes. We were on Lower Wacker Drive when I received a call from a colleague. When I picked up the phone, I answered in Hebrew. According to Milner, the driver immediately stopped the car and started yelling at him. He was saying, get out of my car, Milner said. He was using the F word. I didn't understand what was going on. I asked him what was wrong. He didn't say anything. Just repeated, get out of my car. Milner asked if the problem was that he was speaking Hebrew. The driver said, yes, Milner recalled. Even though I was in the middle of the highway, I decided it was better to get out of the car. He ended up walking the rest of the way home, but not before taking a picture of the driver, who was in a 2017 Toyota Camry. According to the Uber app, the driver has been working for the company for one year and has a 4.89 rating. I was about to say that that driver's rating is five stars of David. <laughs> this just put me in mind of the great scene from Stripes where Bill Murray, you've seen Stripes? No. You've seen Stripes, right? Oh, Leo? of course. Of course, where Bill Murray, it's on. a little bit different because Bill Murray throws the woman out of his cab on, on the bridge, right? He just, he says, I don't want you in my cab. He pulls over, takes her suitcases out, just puts them at the side of the road. This is poor Etai Milner, deputy general consul in Chicago, who like gets thrown out of the cab in, I mean, and the cab driver then just like uses ways to right, get correct. home from there. <laughs> All I can say He's is like, those Jews, they control everything. Ways, what is shortest <laughs> way to meet them? All I can say is um, Lyft, anyone? Yeah, I actually am pro Lyft. <laughs> My sister in law works at Lyft. I'm Lyft, not Uber. So, yeah, that's what I've I mean. Been considering like the kind of overall etiquette of cab drivers, especially like in this city, to be thrown out of a cab. <laughs> It's really, it's really a new, <laughs> a new, a new level, a new low. Top that, Stephanie Butnick. Okay, so you know how, like, when I write "congrats" on your Facebook wall, it kind of like animates with like little confettis falling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you've like been a Jewish user of social media and you like want to wish them a Mazel Tov, you wouldn't get that same effect until now. Oh. 
because Facebook, I guess, in an effort to something, 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 I don't know. To maybe now, make us forget about, <laughs> you know, rigging the election. In, and in an effort to placate Jews. Taking our privacy is, away. Is, has added like mazel tov to the list of words that like sort of like spark an animation. What's the animation? Is like like guys it, in a Russian Fiddler on the Roof tradition dance, like <laughs> with their arms around each yeah, other. Yeah, like Paises just fall down. Bottles on their confetti. head. Yeah. But, you know, as our as our super intern, but that was okay. so funny. And there was just, you wrote Muscle Tough, and there's a huge picture of Rabbi Menachem and Schneerson. And just covers the coming, screen. Covers the entire <laughs> screen. The Rebbe can curse. But, you know, we have our wonder intern, Theo Cantor, and he wrote that basically, like, his friends were like, what? Like, too late for us. You know, like, the people who, like, you'd think were, would be really excited about this, the teens are like, meh. Fair. Well, the, the teens are post Facebook, right? It's all Instagram I mean, it, these this days. This is really like for and your Snapchat. aunt who uses Facebook, right? Um, right. But here's the thing: if it is for your aunt who uses Facebook, then Mazel Tov is like really just a gateway drug. Then you should go like full in. You should do like whenever you write like I'm so verklempt, like there'll be just an illustration of someone going like, <laughs> be like, oh, all these tourists, and then just the screen will turn black. Like you should really go. Full Yiddish. You should see like a, a big scoop of hummus just hit the screen. But I, <laughs> yeah, I feel like instead of like emojis, which are like the Kim Kardashian emojis, we should have like Gilda Radner emojis that just or like shlomojis. <laughs> the shlomo emojis. Uh, the, the International Consortium of Internet or whatever you're called. If you're listening, we would like some shlomojis. Yeah, like give us some real serious Yiddish stuff. So I recently saw a movie that I loved so much. It's called Wendy Shabbat. How great is that movie? It was, oh my God, it's so so sweet. It's basically the story of a group of elderly Jews who live in Palm Desert out in California. And each Friday night for a few years now, they have been meeting at the local Wendy's, the fast food restaurant. Kehillat Kedosha Beit Baconator. And yeah, they just eat, have a nice nice meal there. And it's so sweet the the people who work at Wendy's love it they set up the table they put a reserve sign and these people you know they bring their like electronic Shabbat candles and so I had the the pleasure of sitting down with Rachel Myers who directed the film and her grandmother Roberta is one of the stars of the film actually Rachel's mother produced the film so it was like a real family affair so um, so the movie just premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival a few weeks ago and so Rachel and Roberta were in town and I sat down with them and here is our interview so why Wendy's how did this start well there was a couple that um, as if you saw in the film, uh, Sharon Goodman. She and her husband and another friend went one Friday night. They had nothing to do and they decided they are going to go to Wendy's. And of course, the husband said, Wendy's? I mean, they they couldn't imagine. So they went to Wendy's and they asked the manager if they could come. And the manager said yes. And this is how it started. But come bearing candles come, and challah. Yeah, and they wine. had challah. I mean, not wine. Not wine. Not real. <laughs> the battery operated candles because we, you know, the fire hazard. So uh, that's how it started. And today we can get on, depending on the Friday and the time of year, we can get like 20 people or we can have 28 or 30. Maybe sometimes uh, we've had since this uh, video has been out there, we've had as many as 40 people show up at Wendy's. And it's just a hoot. It really is. But it's so nice because even if they're strangers, they're welcomed and it's 
it's a just a very warm, warm feeling to go. Yeah, she called and, me the week after um, it happened that that it went viral because we had two hundred thousand hits online, and and she said it was standing room only at yeah. Wendy's. Yeah. <laughs> and one of my favorite things is actually the employees at Wendy's who now know oh, to expect yeah. you guys and love you guys so much. Yeah, and then you know we somebody brings gala, somebody brings dessert, and if we have extra dessert, we just give it to the kids in the back, and they're appreciative, <laughs> and and they. They really go out of their way for us, so it's been uh, uh, it's been fun. Yeah, they set up the tables and put a little reserve sign. It's, I yeah. know it's so beautiful. We had some women come. A group of people came. Uh, they're from uh, Vancouver. Not last was it? I think last Friday we walk in and there's white tablecloths and flowers. <laughs> these some these people that have been coming, uh, they just brought. They just set the table with flowers and tablecloths. It was just so nice, so sweet. I mean, I think there is something really about the scene, the scene of you guys there together that really resonates with people. I think one of the employees yes. in the film says it reminds him of his grandparents. I mean, it just is this really feel good story about. Yeah. A group of people coming together. I felt like it was a great way to show a window into this community, be- a, a, a positive portrayal of right. active senior life that isn't seniors who are sick or struggling with, with you know the the challenge in our film is really the film navigates the line about um, between growing older and seeing people you care about and love as friends pass away and partners, um, and then finding community in in later life. Yes. We so. had a uh, couple of people that lost their spouses, and uh, yeah, they're they're back at Wendy's. They come. They're just they're they're just part of. Uh, if you've ever heard of the word havara, which is a group, it's family. It's become like a havara. Yeah, it's been very sad because in the last year since we filmed the movie, four members of the group have passed away. Um, and Rabbi Rabbi Zelda. Isaiah Zeldin, who was a really prolific rabbi, was one of those those people who who we lost and a good friend of of Nana's a friend um so you know that side of the mortality of of the group is is an interesting part of the conversation yeah but you keep going and uh we talk about people that have passed but uh you know what they're all still with us they're still (laughs) part of the group and i think there's a really important and amazing message about ritual and, and spirituality that you could make this place sacred up wendy's that serves cheeseburgers and bacon whatevers is a is actually a sacred place for you guys yeah it, it is and uh it could as rachel said it could have been anywhere but the being as convenient as it is and they've been so wonderful to us um and it's affordable. And, yeah. No one has to clean up. Yeah, there's the four dollars. There's the four. <laughs> yeah, get <laughs> we come in for four dollars. You get a hamburger, fries, nuggets, and a drink. As Rabbi Selden said, it's, uh, it's a hard it's a good to deal. <laughs> it's a great deal. So, is it true that there are other Wendy Shabbat groups that are forming? Yeah, we've. Um, I mean, I you know we only have been receiving. Uh, emails and like follow-up photos so I don't know the extent uh, beyond what we're hearing from them but we were asked by a few groups if they were able to use the name Wendy's Shabbat like if if we would give them permission um, to to form their own group so we we know that um, there was a group that had a Wendy's Shabbat in Boca and uh, Toronto got an email and we got some photos from a group in Tennessee who 
who took pictures at a Mexican restaurant and they brought a challah and wine and they said it was Wendy's Shabbat with margaritas. Yeah. Ooh, that sounds fun. <laughs> that sounds fun. It does. Yeah. I mean, years ago I was in Israel over the summer and like I was on, on a beach with a bonfire on a Friday night and that was Shabbat and I felt it, like it was a little enviable that in in Israel, like you can just be Jewish and Shabbat is Shabbat. And, and, and for American Jews, it's kind of like you have to go do something. And so what I love about Wendy's Shabbat is it's like it really doesn't require much. It's not about where you go, what you eat. It's being together with a group that are friends and that it's a warm, wonderful feeling. So I, as I say, it, it, as Rachel said, it could be a bonfire down at a beach or at a Wendy's. <laughs> That's the way I feel about it. And I bro was brought up in originally in a very orthodox home. And Friday night was, you were all there, and uh, you sat down at the table for Shabbat, and that was the way it was. I love this. This is, I mean, this is such, it's such a beautiful story, and it's so nice that you guys are here together. I mean, and you're, it's a real family affair, because your mother produced yeah, the film, Yeah, right? my, mom, my mom is a retired elementary school teacher and principal, and, you know, has never produced anything. Well, that's not entirely true. She did She did produce a very ambitious production of uh, The Wizard of Oz when she was a, an elementary Principal. school. Principal, yeah, she was in uh, elementary school. Yeah. She produced a production of The Wizard of Oz with like 500 kids years ago. But And, and we've always been a sort of theatrically oriented family, but she's never produced a film. And I basically said, Mom... Nana's in this and I'm directing it and she just rose to the challenge and she's she's done a fantastic job like handling all the you know correspondence and scheduling and festivals and she built the website and so she's a producer very talented very talented family See, what can it's I like, tell look at you? these amazing women that I come from and I will also say I mean it was really interesting to work together like three generations of women in the family to have that kind of relationship with my mom because we've never had a sort of business administrative relationship and and it went so smoothly and it was it felt like the the strength of our personal relationship just made the professional you know business affairs really easy and you've been a wonderful talent she didn't she didn't know she was going to be a star at 88 and could uh, you could you believe? Can you believe I can it? believe oh, you're a star. <laughs> oh and then and then I will also say that that I made the project with a group of female filmmakers. It was all women um, from my cinematographer, John Tyson, my amazing editor, Dana Turkin, who really helped me shape the voice of the whole thing. And, and Juliana Schatz, the field producer. So it was, it was just like a, you know, love, 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 love all around. It, very, it was fun. It really was. When she first presented the idea, I said, Oh, well, okay, why not? But, uh, Never in wildest dreams could you ever imagine anything like this. I'm just so proud of her. I think she's just, she's phenomenal. Oh, she's oh. just a great person and uh, a great talent. Well, I get it from you. Oh. <laughs> no. I was, I, you know, we've always had a really good, close, close relationship. relationship. And, um... Oh, God, you're going to make me cry. Oh, boy, don't do that. <laughs> no, but we've always had a really close relationship. And um, it was interesting as a filmmaker because I wanted to be honest in the portrayal of her, but I also, 
you know, wanted to show things that are somewhat uncomfortable. Like we, we, we shot her like lying in bed or sleeping or things, you know, that really show the vulnerability of being on your own. And, and it's been really challenging, like since my grandpa passed away, because they were together their whole lives. And, and so I really had a hard time navigating that a little bit. And in yeah. some of the questions too, you know, we ask questions of you that really were very personal, very pushed. personal. And, and yeah. I, you know, we, you and I have talked like that privately, but for you to speak like that in front of a camera crew and to put it on film, I mean, that really was powerful. If you ask me how I met your grandfather, that was, that was, uh, that was interesting. So, but I was honest. Yeah. Yeah. And some other things which didn't make it into the film, but it was, it was, um, it was really tender and, and I'm really glad that we could share this. It was really special. Yeah. Now your kids can always know what your grandmother was like. Oh, stop. You're going to be around forever. Oh, well, I hope to be. <laughs> I hope to be. She's very active between, like, mahjong and cardiac exercise class and walking in the pool. I walked in the pool. I, I try it every day, but that gets away from me sometimes. But I do go in the water, try and walk at least an hour every day. Well, thank you so much, director Rachel Myers, movie star Roberta Mahler, <laughs> wendyshabbat.com. Thank you. Good luck thank with everything. You. Well, thank you so much. Okay, thanks. to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture, as a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. It's Mother's Day, and we talk a lot about mothers and daughters and sons and things like that. But what we don't talk about often is the journey to motherhood and the often difficult time people have having babies. Um, and we thought it would be interesting to look at this from the Jewish perspective um, in a community where, you know, like be fruitful and multiply is what we are told to do. Um, so we're here on the phone with Panina Lam Kaplansky, who's calling us from Modine in Israel, where she lives after moving um, from New York with her family in 2011. 
And we wanted to talk to Panina because she wrote a really great article in the Times of Israel. It was called Thoughts from a Member of the Miscarriage Club, in which she was really, really candid about the experience of having a miscarriage um, sort of far along in her pregnancy and what happened in the Jewish community and, and the resources she was and wasn't able to find. Hi, Panina. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So in the piece you write, I began to wonder why so few people ever talk about it in our Jewish community. I would have loved to read some articles about how women cope from a Jewish perspective. It seems like you found out only through this experience that so many other women that you knew and didn't know had had a similar experience. You called it a club you don't want to join. Yeah, exactly. So so I, I think kind of, you know, in our... At the time, you know, it was my first experience with it, obviously, because it was my first pregnancy. It was my, you know, it was my first and hopefully my only loss. Um, so I, I didn't really know anybody who had gone through it. Um, after I wrote this article, I got about 200 emails um, from all sorts of people who had gone through similar experiences, whether it be people, you know, my age in their early 20s with their first child, you know, people in their 40s with their seventh child that they lost. Um, people who had miscarriages 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, so I kind of really felt like it gave people an opportunity to have somebody to talk to. Um, but um, I have been, you know, surprised and, and I guess happy um, to see that there have been a lot of changes since I've, since I've gone through that experience, or maybe I've just been exposed to things that I didn't know about before. Um, like there is an organization that I've um, heard of called Yeshikva, um, which helps women in the Jewish community um, and gives them support if they're going through infertility or pregnancy loss issues. Um, so they run a really fabulous um, program called the, I think it's called the Shabbat All Over the World. And what they do is they encourage um, rabbis or teachers or women in various communities all over the world um, to dedicate one Shabbat before Pesach to talking about infertility or pregnancy loss in front of the whole community. Um, so this past year, well, the past two years, we've done it in Arshul, Zion, and Modin. Um, and it's been really great um, in terms of just inspiring conversation and kind of bringing, you know, awareness to the fore just in terms of the fact that we as a, as a Jewish community or we as a community in general um, need to be there for each other, not only when there are happy things like going to a breed or going to a wedding or things like that, but also when things just are really hard. Um, and just to be more open about that and kind of give advice to people about, you know, how to handle it when your friends are going through it, when you're going through it and things like that. I just like it sparked a really nice conversation. Speaking of advice, is there any piece of advice that having gone through what you went through, you would want to hear right now that you think someone in that condition really could take to heart? It's interesting. I think I, I more have advice for people who have friends who are going through it, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's important, too. Um, I would say the first thing is that, you know, I, we have a tendency to be, be nervous about asking people about hard things, you know, after somebody who has a, some, a close relative who passed away, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to bring it up. You don't want to make them upset and stuff like that. So I guess I just have news for people, um, which is that when you've gone through a, a big loss, like a stillbirth or are going through infertility, oftentimes it's something that you really can't get off your mind. Obviously everybody's different. Um, but I think in general, people who are going through things like this want to be asked how they're doing. Um, and once you do ask somebody how they're doing, just be there to listen to them and show them that they're not a burden because they have problems. Um, so I think that's the first thing to just ask and to listen. Um, the second thing um, I would say is also just, just be mindful of what you're sharing on social media. I think that, you know, we obviously kind of tend to put our perfect lives forward on social media and the person on the other end, your friend who doesn't have a child or doesn't have a spouse or who doesn't, 
you know, who doesn't have that perfect life, it's sometimes hurtful to them. So just to be mindful of that. Penina, give me an insight into modern Orthodox world on this. You know, my, sure. my, my world is not as observant as yours. And, you know, in my world, if you have zero, one, two, three kids, you know, it's when you get over four kids or over three that people start talking, right? Um, you know, in your world, in Israel, I, the norm is four or five kids, broadly mm-hmm. speaking. Is that right? Yeah, something something like that. So think, you, you know, know be, it's a range, but be totally candid with me. You know, what's mm-hmm. what is how do people whisper behind people's backs? Do people think if you're in a modern Orthodox community, do people think eight is crazy? And and conversely, do people if you only have zero or one or two, um, do people feel pity? Do they feel a little bit of scorn, like you're not doing the job? I mean, what what's the kind of chatter that goes on mm-hmm. uh, in the community based on how many kids you you're having? that people aren't so judgmental. Um, I do think, though, that as, as you know, I really think that as issues like, um, you know, like infertility, miscarriages, but also things like mental illness and stuff like that become more of a conversation, and I really do think they're becoming more of a conversation, people aren't talking and behind people's backs and saying, oh, she, they only have two kids, like, oh, maybe they're, like, not as observant as we think they are, maybe, but I think they'll tend towards a more sensitive approach of, you know, either this isn't where they're at and they're not trying to have more or, you know, maybe they're going through something and that's really hard. Let's try and be there for them. I really do think that's where, like where my community at least is headed. And I can speak to my community. Although on the other hand, I do think that like, as, as a person who lives in a more homogeneous community of people who are in their, you know, who are in their twenties and early thirties and who are all basically married and in childbearing age, like obviously there is this pressure. Um, you know, there are like, 20 women in my community who are pregnant right now. So, you know, obviously <laughs> there's this pressure to, um, to, you know, have children. And when you don't, and you do feel like you're kind of excluded from the community, whether that's purposeful from the side of the community or not, um, you kind of are excluded in that sense. Right. I mean, when the socializing is at the playground or at drop off at the, at the Correct. nursery school, you know, that's, it's hard to, to escape that. The other question I had is, um, you talked a second ago about social media and you have to be careful what you mm-hmm. put out there. Um, I sometimes feel like social media does is there's only a downside, right? It just makes people feel bad. And there's and there's research on this too that people tend to look at other people's lives on social media, these perfectly curated lives, and then just feel bad about themselves. I mean, is there an upside? It seems to me if you're going through something like this, I could imagine that what you want is to be loved by close friends and family whom you've talked to and then to, you know, not have to deal with the the perfectly curated Facebook feeds of the rest of the world. Is there any argument for social media if you've gone through miscarriage or stillbirth or infertility? I think there are two types of personalities, first of all. I think there's the types of personalities that are that just get very sad and can't and can't look at anything. That was kind of my type of personality. And then there's like my husband's type of personality, which is like, we need to be happy for everybody. It's so great. Um, so there's definitely two types of personalities there, but I also do think that... By the way, I'm, um, I'm sorry to interrupt, but how did that play out when you were going through, you know, what you were going through? It was Were there moments in which you just looked and be like, why are you so, you know, benevolent and open right now? Why aren't you mourning with me? Uh, yeah, I guess I guess there were times like that. It's it's definitely you know, sober miscarriage and fertility. You know, causes you to think about a lot of different things in your relationships that you didn't think about before. Um, so it's definitely it's you no know, like every transition in life. It's kind of a work in progress to reestablish you know reestablish your your relationships and stuff like that. Um, but I do think that just for the the positive side of of social media is that you can 
you know, what I, you know, how did I get the word out about the article that I wrote, which got responses from so many people? It was by sharing it on social media. So I think that, you know, if we, and also the other thing is that I think it's nice to share things on social media. If you have, you know, a new baby, that's so beautiful to share it with your friends and family. But on the other side, you have to balance it with sensitivity. So, you know, the way I kind of view it is if you're going to post something about your kid, also post an article about that, like reaches out to somebody who, you know, or that will speak to somebody who's going through something that's hard. So, like, I, I really do try when I see an article that speaks to me in terms of what I've gone through with infertility and miscarriage, I like to post it because that's kind of a way of signaling to people, you know, there are really great things that are happening here to all of your friends. And, you know, either you might be sad or it might make you happy, but there are also people out there who are remembering what you're going through, can identify with what you're going through and who can empathize with what you're going through. And we know you have to go because you have to pick up your daughter from daycare, right? Yeah. I do. Yeah, so I did have a happy ending. <laughs> so I'm curious how how your experience has, you know, you're talking about don't po- you know, when you post pictures of your your beautiful child, which I'm sure you do. I mean, how does this experience sort of how has it sort of changed you and now, especially now that you have have a child? Yeah, so I I think first of all, I think after I had my daughter, it took me a long time to allow myself to like be in that in that kind of place where I was like, yeah, I'm a mother because I, for so long I had been a person who was either, you know, upset or, you know, sometimes jealous or, you know, felt hurt and stuff like that. And so like it took me a long time to transition from from that to, you know, all of a sudden being happy. I finally, you know, we finally got what we wanted. Um, so that was like kind of a hard, like an interesting transition. Um, but of course I really, you know, like it, it continues to be an issue that I, that I, you know, really, really care about. Um, so I continue to run this Yish Chikva um, awareness Shabbat in Ursul. Um, but I also, you know, I just try to be as sensitive as possible. I really don't post pictures actually on social media. Um, and, I, you know, I think it's something that I think anybody who goes through this kind of situation can say that it changes them forever just in terms of, you know, what, you know, watching their words and making sure they're not say something insensitive. Obviously, we all spoke up sometimes, but I think, you know, it kind of guides me in terms of how I, you know, interact with people and how I, you know, interact with my technology and how I interact with my community. Hmm. Um Yes. Well, Panina Lam Kaplansky, thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week. This has been a, a moving and extraordinary conversation. I encourage everyone to go to the Times of Israel and look at your wonderful piece, Thoughts from a Member of the Miscarriage Club, and tell us the website of the organization you run. At herenextyearisrael.com. Herenextyearisrael.com for people looking at a at time in the IDF, right? IDF, Sherut Lumi, or University in Israel. Excellent. All right. Go go pick up your daughter. We'll talk to you later. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Benina. <laughs> Thank Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Have a great day. Bye. What a great interview. I just want to say what she said is totally true, which is when you have a miscarriage, you discover everybody's had miscarriages. I think we had three or four. I can't even remember. And people see you and they think, you have a lot of kids. You mu- fertility must be easy. And fertility is not easy. And what's more, we had a miscarriage between child four and child, well, God, God willing, child five. But after four children, a year or so ago, we had a miscarriage. And they just keep coming. It's like, it's this endless, I mean, we're, we're it so happens that like, I think Sid's temperament about these things, especially when you've had a very successful first pregnancy. We got pregnant very easily the first time. And that was... 
you know, and, right. and ended up with a totally easy picture book pregnancy. So you sort of feel like, okay, we can do this. Whereas I think people who have a mi- couple or three miscarriages before, before they the ever, first child, before the first child, it's this panic. Like, will I be able to have a child if that's what you want? Right. And so I think we never had that panic, but I think there was a miscarriage between Rebecca and Ellie. I can't even remember where the second or third was. I mean, it's like, it's a fog of like, will this, will this work? And there are people who have nine kids, but have had 20 pregnancies. I also think there's a way in which, and maybe it's I'm associating it with the Jewish community because it's what I'm part of, but there's like a, oh, when when are you going to have kids? When are you going to have right. kids? And that's actually a really insensitive thing to say mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, right? Like I, it is. It's, it's, I feel like not, I'm not trying to have kids right now, but there's a way in which I think, especially once you're married, there's people look at you and they're they're expecting something and you have no idea what someone's going through. And I think that there's this community, it's sort of like Soon By You, that that web series where it's like, oh, Soon By You, soon you'll be engaged. I, I can't even imagine in a community where everyone has a bunch of kids. Right. First of all, I mean, a decision to have fewer kids just because of, you know, the the difficulties of modern life, right? I don't know. I just think we should all be a little bit more sensitive to that stuff. And I think, you know, I give enormous credit to my friends who I know have struggled with fertility. By the way, the same thing is true for people who want to be partnered in life, which not everyone does, but people who do want to be partnered who haven't found a partner yet, which is, you know, as we go on in life or people who want to make partner at the firm. I mean, those people who have aspects of good fortune that they're hoping for that they don't have yet who are surrounded by people who have them. That puts enormous strains on friendships and relationships, and I give enormous credit to the people I know who are struggling with fertility or um, have had, you know, painful experiences who really do summon, like, who genuinely feel cheer and goodwill for people who seem to, like, just have one, you know, bit of good luck after the next with things like childbearing or relationships. And I think, I mean, what are you going to do when you're having, you know, a fourth or fifth child? You're not going to not tell people, right? And so, on the other hand, like... It has to be painful for certain people to to see that happen. I mean, right. I, I know one feels this around weddings too, which is like, you know, you 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 yeah, worry good, about good for you, good for you, I'm so happy for you. You worry about the single friend, and it's and then, but you don't want to be like pitying the person because, of course, you know, you want to assume that their lives are terrific and rich, which they are, and it's it's all very it's so complicated. But it's, it is interesting. <laughs> it's also complicated. I'm sure people look at your family and are like, oh, fourth. And a fifth on the way, like look at like lucky, you know those. But it actually is not like that at all, right? Yeah. Like now you're ways just gloating, Oppenheimer. <laughs> you know, the fifth kid is just a well, few kid to the rest of us. I mean, I always make this point about about money as well, which is I, you know, some sometimes we what's assume that? what's that? Sometimes people assume that like the family that has a big income, which by the way, you know, this is not a problem we have. But I try to remember when I see people who I know have very big incomes. I also don't know how many deadbeat relatives they're supporting or. How how many elderly relatives are in very expensive end of life care? You just don't know what's going on with other people. So what do we do? We are sensitive, but you're also just nice to people. You're just nice you're just to a people. Decent, kind, thoughtful human being solves all problems. That's right. right away. That's right. And try Amen. to remember that you're Inshallah, not. bless. And remember that Moses you're not the, Jesus. the center of the universe. And I want to say, right. I think if there's one like specific bit of advice that she had, she said, do ask people how they're doing. That's and right. I yeah. think I will say, err on the side of asking people. Like for every one out of ten people who will say that's really private and be kind of snippy about it. Nine, be nine people, be nine like, people will be oh my so God, grateful thank you that you so much. Of yeah, course. Ask people. I think when you know something bad has happened to someone, you almost don't want to ask them right. about it. But it's like, no, we should. We should Somebody just... who's lost someone, I try to, six months or a year out, I say, how are you doing about that loss? And I've never had someone be anything but grateful. You know, sometimes they'll say, I don't want to talk about it. Thank Absolutely. you so much for asking. You know, just, just be pushed into people's lives a little bit. Just be a person.
Our Gentile of the Week is like a serious, serious Gentile. We Big are Gentile. very, very into it. Uh, Sister Julia Walsh, she's a Franciscan sister of perpetual adoration. That is so Gentile. She is a Catholic youth minister and a committed social justice activist. And she is on staff at Marywood Franciscan Spirituality Center in northern Wisconsin. Hi, Sister Julia. Hello. Hello. Sister Julia. I, I want to say shalom to you all because sometimes <laughs> I say that to my friends and I think I'm nuts. <laughs> this you can. This well, is the this place. This is a safe space. You could say whatever shalom you want. Right up there in northern Wisconsin, they don't speak shalom, do they? Yeah, I don't know any Jews around here. Sorry. <laughs> now I'm hearing. A, I'm hearing a lilt of northern Wisconsin in your voice. Are you from the deep north originally? Actually, I'm from Iowa. I grew up in Iowa. But yeah, so I'm pretty Midwest. You're pretty Midwest. Yeah. I got it. So listen, thank you so much for being our Gentile of the Week. Um, welcome to our our very Jewish podcast. We've we've heard wonderful things about you. We're so excited to have you here. Um, this is our, thank as it happens. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. It's a true honor. I can't even tell you how exciting this By is. By the way, the Gentiles are so much nicer right. when they come on the show. I know. I know. Like you're the thanking Jews are just us. Like, yeah, that's okay. Whatever. <laughs> Ask me questions. <laughs> what are you feeding me? Yeah. So this is our Mother's Day episode. So, of course, we thought we'll get on someone who has promised that for this life, at least, she's not going to have children. We thought you would just be the perfect guest. Um, so we're going to get to that in a second. But but first of all, could you sum up for us? How do you end up a Franciscan sister of perpetual adoration? What took you here? When did you figure out this was your calling? Mm, yeah, maybe I'm still trying to figure that out, actually. <laughs> here I am 12 years into the life and still not sure, yet committed. So, right? Isn't that the way um, a relationship with God works? Is yep. it just kind of like bowing to the mystery over and over? And um, It's like you've without, got to renew oh. your vows every few years. You go to Vegas and say, <laughs> God, still still with you. It's perpetual perplexion <laughs> is what it is. Like, I am doing this. I don't fully know why. That's how I feel. Yeah, right? Here I am. Um, actually, the, we had a celebration here at the, at the Spirituality Center a, a week ago um, for sisters in this diocese. I don't know if that's such a Catholic word, but you know, this region of, of the church, um, the bishop came and there were all these older sisters who were um, renewing their vows for 50 or more years. And then I was there for like, Oh, it's my ninth year of vows. (laughs) You felt like such a piker. (laughs) This is like Scientology where you sign a billion year contract. It's just like Scientology. Just like Scientology. Okay, so you've been in for 12 years. You know, tell us how you got in. Yeah, sure. Okay, so I guess, I mean, it's really actually a very long, complicated process. And I I would, I didn't really know that getting into it. I didn't know any nuns or sisters um, growing up and um, only was exposed to the life through, through Sister Act and Sound of Music. And so, like, that was my narrow understanding of what it was and then Whoopi Goldberg um, got you <laughs> yeah oh yeah you know she looked at made it look so fun even though she wasn't real she was undercover so um yeah and I when I guess I guess when I was like 17 or something I I can't I had a, a prayer experience where I heard be a nun be a nun over in my head like as if it were uh, a song that I can get out of my head and I just was terrified and um tried to avoid it, but yet wanted to be faithful. So I sent in a card for some information and that got me on some mailing lists. And then through college, I started visiting convents and um, meeting with a spiritual director and praying and just kind of trying to really understand what it was all about. Did you do a nun run? Oh, no, actually, I don't even know if they existed because this would have been like the early 2000s. And I feel like that started happening in, yeah, the 2010s or so. (laughs) What's a nun run? Do you you want to tell them, Sister Julia, what a nun run is? 
Yeah, yeah, they're so um they look really amazing. Um basically it's like a bar bar crawl, but it's from convent to convent like in a day where you check out each one really quick. <laughs> and it's it's women at Catholic colleges will often do them like on spring break. They'll do a week where they'll just right. hop on a bus and do a nun run and like check out possible convent options. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, um no, I didn't have that opportunity. I feel like since I was discerning um back in the day, it was there's there's been a lot more um, there's a, just an, an increase of like things that are available for sisters for, for, excuse me, women who are thinking about becoming sisters or not. So, so it was really confusing when I did it. Yeah. I'm still curious. So here you are one okay. day in college and you're living a collegiate lifestyle, you know, more or less, uh, wild, uh, you know, <laughs> not actually, <laughs> right. No, but I'm saying still more like a secular, a secular, um, let me rephrase this. One day you're in college, you're living the collegiate lifestyle. It's totally, you know, secular. And then yeah. the next day you are in a totally different environment. What was it like walking into a convent for the first time? The first time I went was actually, I think it was at the end of my freshman year of college. I went and visited a convent. And um, I remember having the same sort of giddiness that I did when I went to prom. Like where I was just like, oh my gosh, this is so exciting, and this could change my life forever. In the same sort of way that I might have about some of the guys that I just sat on the couch and held hands with, you know. (laughs) You had a much better prom than I did. I have to say. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I was just a really good two shoes, you know. I was a really good Christian girl. So how did you decide on the? Because I'm going to speak Catholic now for a moment. Like, what was it about the charism of the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration that made you say, "Yeah, this is for me." as opposed yeah. to the Dominicans or the Sisters right. of St. Joseph or one of the others? So, um, uh, actually, at the end of college was when I kind of came out to my friends and said, hey, everyone, I think I'm going to be a nun. And they're like, yeah, we know. <laughs> oh, okay. And, <laughs> so, so then they were all... Who'd um, you think you were I, kidding? We right. totally knew. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. And, um, they, and, and I was at a Catholic college at the time, and so there was like this culture there. And so then everyone was kind of suggesting communities. And and my best friend at the time, he had happened to have visited my, you know, my current community's convent, like, uh, a few months prior. And so he's like, oh, I know the community for you. And then he described them as like, oh, they're really, um, they're really tr- respectful of tradition, and they have great devotion and great prayer life, but they're also um, very modern, and they're interested in social justice, and they're they're academic and they're artistic. And I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds like everything I want to be. Sounds great, you know? And um, so right after I graduated from college, I went and visited for a week. And uh, by the end of the week, I just was like, yeah, this is going to be who I enter. But it was only, I guess, 22, 23 or something. So I, I kind of thought, well, but I'm going to enjoy my 20s first. I'm going to try to be normal and blend in. And I'll do this when I'm 30, when I'm all grown up. <laughs> But yeah, you can't really procrastinate on God's like what God has. No, and he to calls. Do. He yeah, calls. No. How did your parents take it? Let's see. They were my mom was a convert from Lutheran to Catholic, so so she. Um, I think my observation was that she really struggled with like um, kind of giving up her dreams for me. She always expected that I was going to be a wife and a mother, and you know, be maybe just doing the, being a teacher and just kind of living this traditional life that she had heard me talk about fairly, you know, for, for years. So that was a fair assumption that that's where I, so I think she was, it was definitely a curveball for her. My dad, on the other hand, was um, so excited and he was a hospice nurse and he started like asking all his patients as on their deathbeds to pray rosaries for me. <laughs> so, um, 
obviously it's become clear already that you're going to come back to the show many times, that you are going to be our house nun. But um, but, but <laughs> for the purposes of this episode, uh, we are we are curious about the motherhood aspect of it. I mean, you you told us uh, before the show that you had always thought you'd be a mom, that you'd have children. And so has that has that been a struggle giving up on that idea? Um, yeah, yeah, it has. It continues to be. I live, I think I live 15, 12 hours away or something from my niece and nephew. So, um, you know, they're the, the closest thing I got to, to flesh and blood. And, um, uh, you know, that experience of descendants, which is just, it's so important. It's a human need in some ways, right. To have that. Um, yeah. So, and and I, and I have this great fear that like my, my niece and nephew aren't going to really know me and I'm just going to be kind of like this blurry adult in their life. And I don't know how, um, to show them that I'm so devoted when they see me absent, you know, and they don't see me, I'm absent to them. So, so it is, it's one of those things that I'm, I'm always sort of grappling and struggling with. And, um, but on the other hand, I guess I, I had a sense when I was, probably in those college years when I was kind of, you know, coming into who I was that like, if I would have been a mother, it wouldn't have let me become my best self. And I just had this, um, kind of like this imagination of like, well, I'm going to be sitting there trying to pray in the morning and then there's going to be babies crawling all over me. And I will just be annoyed with the kids because I can't be talking to God. It's like, that's not going to be good for anybody. So, um, so yeah, I, it, it does seem like this lifestyle of not being, a wife and a mother is is like actually giving me the freedom to be my best self. I think freedom is a is a really interesting word. And it's almost like you're free to do. I think what you describe is sort of like a broader have a broader reach, essentially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, I think if I would have I would have become, you know, married, I probably would have ended up in a house with a mortgage and kind of like, um, really like, okay, honey, how do you, what are we going to do now? And just really, you know, versus this, this, um, the interdependency is with a much larger group of women who are much more free spirited and devoted to like serving people in the same way that I am. So they understand, oh yeah, you, you're called to now do this thing and go there. And, and, um, so, so you have the freedom. Go ahead. So here's a question though, kind of along these lines, you know, a couple of weeks ago, there was a, a pretty big, scandal in the press when um, Paul Ryan fired the the house chaplain, the Jesuit father, Patrick Conroy. And part of the mm-hmm. reason uh, giving for the firing, obviously there was a lot of political you know backlash too, but part of the reason given is that a, a Jesuit priest cannot uh, really minister to, to people with families not knowing what their particular challenges and, you know, needs are. When you kind of read that news, does that, does that infuriate you? Does it make sense to you? Do you feel, how do you feel, in other words, your, um, your standing is with, with people who have life experiences that are so radically different? Yeah, that's a fair question. And I would say that because I'm a minister and because people will sit down with me and kind of like pour out their hearts and, and their pains and, you know, their, their, what they're struggling with, I, I'm able to kind of feel at times like I'm a mirror and I'm able to see into their lives differently than if I were experiencing it. So I, 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 when I heard that, you know, then there's a part of me that just really got defensive and feeling about like, what are they talking about? Don't they understand that like we might actually know more about 
marriage and family life right. by observing it and, and having our own families and in and the challenges of it it's not like we're isolated and removed from the world but we're actually serving a lot of people who are involved in the challenges mm. all the time so mm. so it's it's not like our our nucleus is you know we're not just focused on our own little family we're focused on yeah Amen, sister. And and you're a youth minister, so I'm curious what the experience is. I mean, you obviously, it's obviously important to you to work with young people. Yeah, yeah. I always wanted to be a teacher, so that's still part of it for me. And I, I mean, I was an education major, and you know, that's kind of my background. Um, and so, I don't, I don't know. I struggle with like, am I really a sister? I don't really know if that should be on my bio because, because I don't like versus when I was teaching high school, I had a steady group of kids that, that I had relationships with. And now it's, um, it's more like I'm in and out of these kids' lives. Um, I will say though, that they, they do seem to be receptive of me because they've never met anyone like me before. And they probably have all these stereotypes about what sisters aren't or aren't. And then they meet me and they're like, Oh, maybe that's actually something I could do. So that's that's kind of nice. Mm-hmm. You're a cool um, sister. You're not a regular <laughs> sister. All right. So listen, uh, Sister Julia. Um, one of the the privileges that you get as Gentile of the Week is the opportunity to ask questions of an internationally recognized panel of Jewish experts as certified by iTunes. So do you have any questions for for us? Anything you've wondered about Jews or Judaism that we can help you with? Yeah, I do. I have a thousand, but I'm just going to ask a really silly question. But it's something I wonder about all the time. Do you guys get really sad that you can't eat bacon? Okay, well, only one of us here doesn't eat bacon because only really, only more observant Jews who keep... Two of us. Oh, okay, but you're a vegetarian. You're not I kosher. I am vegetarian, but but also I had started keeping kosher before I became a vegetarian. So basically, Sister Julia, mm. like there are a lot of Jews who don't eat eat bacon, who don't eat pork because they keep kosher. And then there are some Jews who just like for whom they'll eat shellfish, but bacon and pork is just like a, a, a bridge too far. But a lot of Jews who are more secular, who who don't don't observe the the laws of of kashrut, they do eat bacon, and and like I eat bacon, and I love it so much. And now I'm talking about, it, I feel a little guilty. But, but it's like it, for me. us, is it is the forbidden fruit, right? right but like I think, we are all sorts of torn up about bacon. I think eighty percent of American Jews, ninety percent eat bacon. Sister wow. Julia, if if I may, um, if I may confess. Right. That, I think that's a, the appropriate thing to do. Um, <laughs> I, I went kosher. I can't absolve you. Though. Right. Nun, nuns right. actually can't absolve. But go that's ahead. Fine. Go ahead. I'm not asking for, for absolution. I'm, I'm asking. Uh, we just want to talk. You just want to bear in, your soul. In the spirit yeah, of, I'll hear of, you, brother. Yeah, go of ahead. kind of ecumenical love. Uh, so I went kosher about a year ago now. I will be very honest and say that not a freaking day goes by that I don't think about bacon at least part of the time. In fact, oh, that's hilarious. Given, yeah, not not so much for me, uh, but given the choice between giving up, you know, carnal relations or bacon, you know, a really, really <laughs> yeah. tough call. If I could choose, like, do you want to go this or that? Um, I there's I actually would a say, religion that will let you be pious by giving up carnal relations, <laughs> but keeping bacon, Liel. <laughs> so I hear, uh, but I will say that there is a sense. I I, I almost feel like our. You know, like like the wise rabbis made such a great decision. They're like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the absolutely, incontrovertibly greatest, most delicious, most appetizing foodstuff humankind has ever created. 
and we're going to make it completely forbidden. So every time you smell that heavenly smell wafting from some kitchen, you're going to have to stop and remind yourself mindfully that you have a higher calling and that you do not succumb to your, to your earthly-based needs. I, I genuinely love that. I love those moments of oh. daily transcendence. Sister Julia Walsh, we'll see you when we crash your, your, your convent in northern Wisconsin. That'll be us. I can't wait. At two in the morning throwing stones we at your window. We will come to teach the, the Judaism <laughs> section in your, in your youth ministry. Be like, and so we have three live Jews, and they'll tell you everything you want to know. <laughs> Thanks for being our Gentile of the Week. Yeah, my pleasure. God bless you all. Oh, you too. Bye-bye. Shalom. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. mailbox. We have a lot of letters in the queue that we're going to get to next week because this week is chock full of stuff. But I wanted to put out a request for uh, for some stuff. We, we love hearing from you. We hear from you a lot. Uh, I wanted to remind you that we are doing now a regular column at tabletmag.com called Ask Unorthodox, where we're answering all your questions. You know, sometimes we do a special episode of the podcast, but we're also doing a weekly column where we're giving you etiquette tips. We will give you advice about your in-laws. We will give you rabbinic rulings. We will give you permission to, uh, you know, eat something that your rabbi won't. Uh, we will tell you which camp to send your kid to. We will give you fashion advice. Send us your questions, unorthodox at tabletmag.com, and maybe in the subject line put ask unorthodox. You can also call us at 914-570-4869. 
Also, I want you to settle a little debate we've been having. Um, on the Facebook group this week, there was a really, really interesting thread where somebody posted something about a time that one of us had interrupted Stephanie in an episode, and it basically very quickly got into the question of interrupting. And the question at hand seemed to be, is interrupting always or is it often a form of, of gender dynamics at play? Um, is it a power imbalance? Is it inherently mansplaining or men exercising or performing um, their privilege? role when they interrupt. And I, who try to be very sensitive to these questions of gender dynamics, actually pushed back. And I said, one of the things you have to understand is that as has been shown by the linguist Deborah Tannen, uh, Jews are more likely to interrupt whether male or female. Um, cooperative overlapping was her term for it. That that the idea that you cooperative start- Cooperative overlapping. Yeah, this is like I love something it. she's written about and you can find her article, Google it. Like she's And she's a serious, serious linguist. She's done the most important work on the differences in how men and women tend to talk and converse with each other and the gender differences, but also religious differences, which is there is something cultural in certain Ashkenazi Jewish uh, communities, and I think many of us have been exposed to it, where interrupting is not seen as necessarily rude. It's seen as engaged, right? That you don't wait for someone to finish what they're saying, stop, pause, and then say, well, that was interesting. Here's my opinion. Instead, you come in as they seem to be finishing right. or as they've made their point. And this is something that you see in all sorts of families. It's not this is what passion is this like. This is what passion is. This is like actual what, engagement is like. Actual what life is like. Actual discussion, actual argument. And by the way, what Deborah Tannen found is that in, in Jewish culture, as again, Ashkenazi Jewish culture of a certain kind, uh, women do it as well as men, that it's not necessarily a gendered or highly gendered thing, that women do it with each other, that women do it with their sons, with their husbands, and vice versa. Um, so I pushed back on the Facebook thread. And I said, wait a second, if we really want to enforce a regime where nobody interrupts, that is actually kind of hostile to certain aspects of our cultural heritage, that that, that might be fine at, you know, I'm going to stereotype here at like Episcopal Church on the Green in, you know, uh, Greenville, South Carolina or Concord, Massachusetts. But that actually, if you step into a highly Jewish community and say, don't interrupt, what you're saying is don't be as Jewish in a way that some of you were raised to be Don't Jewish. Don't be you. Don't be you. So I had a problem with that. But listen, maybe the answer is, well, times have changed and that aspect of Jewish culture has to change. I don't know. The thing is, I want to hear from the listeners. I want like a massive influx of points of view on this. We will revisit it on a later show. Write to us, unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Put interrupting in the subject line. Just interrupt us. Don't even write it. Call us. Or call us at 914-570-4869. You both could get on the line and you could interrupt each other for the call. Uh, try to keep it to a minute or under. And we will revisit this on a later show. Uh, Mazel Tovs, Leo, what do you have? As, as we record, um, a, a war is brewing. A war for the hearts and minds of, of the people of this planet, also known as the Eurovision Song Contest, <laughs> which I've discussed at great length on this <laughs> and program. maybe too much length. Yeah. Nobody knows anything about this in, Except this, you. in this country, uh, but uh, for much of the rest of the world, it is a very big deal. Right. So in a few hours, we're recording. It's Tuesday morning now at, at I think, 3 p.m. Eastern time. Right. So just as Trump is talking to tell as, us whether he pulls out the Iran Trump deal. is discussing the Iran deal. <laughs> Uh, Something of equal geopolitical significance absolutely. will be happening. Neta Barzilai uh, will take the stage to perform her, what I firmly believe, the winning song toy? this year, Toy. I'm not, not your toy. Your toy. Oh not uh, your toy. Neta, mazal tov. Okay, Stephanie Butnick. I got a mazal tov for all the mamas in my life, in your life, in everyone's life, and also the people who have lost their mothers and for whom Mother's Day is a difficult day. And we are thinking of you and we are sending you love. And, you know, 
That's it. That's all I got. Uh, Josh Cross, our producer, has a mazel tov for his mama, Jill. Jill, Jill Cross. That is such a Gentile name. That's like Sister Jill Cross. What Sister a, Jill of the Cross. What a badass name. <laughs> that is a badass. She is in the Facebook group, so you can just say this Jewish directly to name. her. Uh, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers, uh, including my wife, my sister-in-law, my other sister-in-law, my mother, and also a happy birthday to my mother. She's an early May birthday, as is my brother Daniel. So happy birthdays to them. And a, um, a farewell on a, on a sadder note, a farewell to Rabbi Aaron Pankin, who was uh, the head of Hebrew Union College, the Reform seminary with campuses in Jerusalem, Cincinnati, LA, and New York. Uh, I was really quite moved by the testimonials I saw to the good work he'd done from rabbis who didn't necessarily get along with each other and were from very different kinds of, of worlds. Like my Facebook feed has a lot of rabbis, some of whom are fairly traditionalist, some of whom are very liberal. Reform is a very big tent. And a lot of people who don't necessarily see eye to eye on things said he was a real tzaddik, a really wonderful man and a mentor and a great teacher. And so our, our big uh, our big hug and love and, uh, and, and condolences to the family, to the messengers and all the other people in the greater Penkin Shpucha. A few final bits of business. Uh, we want to remind you that Ruby Namdar will be on our show in June to talk about his wonderful novel, The Ruined House. Uh, last chance to call into our listener line and tell a conversion story. And finally, just a reminder that one of the great ways that you can help us is by posting an iTunes review like this one. Let me read this one aloud. It says Nish Nish Tumish Mush. I'm not your typical unorthodox listener. Hailing from a deeply religious family where Shlomo was really my brother and Ta'anit Esther was a serious holiday, I never thought I'd miss the daily rigmarole of serious religious observance. Unorthodox has taken the place of organized religion. Every Thursday morning, I run faster on the treadmill because unorthodox is getting me there. Yours truly, a Northeastern Jewess currently enjoying some delicious falafel at Nish Nush. Five stars. I love that so much. So basically, she left her family's traditional Judaism and replaced it with us and takes us to the treadmill and eats falafel. Shalom. Shalom Alech. Run, Jewish, run. run. Jewish, run. <laughs> we will be sending you, send us an email with your address. We will be sending you a laptop sticker. Guys, let's try to one-up each other. I mean, come on, that's that's pretty good, but I think some of you can do better. And the iTunes ratings really do help us get in front of other listeners who would enjoy the show. Thank you so much for your support. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or give us a voicemail, 914-570-4869. We often come to you live. For example, recent guest Jenna Weissman Jocelyn, who's also a tablet columnist, will be discussing her book on the Ten Commandments at New York's Congregation Road of Sholem at 7 p.m. on Monday, May 14th. Tickets are free. I myself will be at Greenwich Reform Synagogue on Friday, May 18th. Stephanie will be moderating the next installment of the Jewish Book Council's Unpacking the Book Discussion Series at the Jewish Museum on June 14th. To book any of us, email producer Josh Cross at jcross, cross with a K, at tabletmag.com. Of course, you also need to wear unorthodox in addition to seeing us live. Go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt and find the latest in unorthodox shirts, mugs, and stickers to put on yourself and around your coffee. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodoxpodcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Follow Stephanie Butnick on Instagram at sbutnick. Join our Facebook group. If you do one thing today for the world, for humanity, join the 
the Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Shira Talushkin with help from Julia Frakes. It's edited by Noah Levinson. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our intern for a few weeks more is the splendid Theo Cantor. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Michael Zedek, Emeritus Rabbi of Congregation Emmanuel in Chicago. Dig a little deeper, you'll find out he is the rabbi to the band Wilco. Just ask if you have any questions about that. If you think your rabbi should be selected to offer rabbinic supervision, write to me at moppenheimer at tabletmag.com, and we'll see what we can do. We record at Argo Studios, which is so excited to have Oliver North to kick around again, and we are proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends.